Lord, we pray now that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to the truth and power of your word. Lord, as we turn to the scriptures, may it convict us, comfort us, and encourage us. And Lord, we also pray that today we might see with eyes of faith what is kept for us in heaven, so that we might live our lives here on earth for the glory of the one who reigns in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. My son loves the game of baseball, and so do I. When he was 10 years old, he told me that he wanted to learn how to pitch. Now, I was never much of a baseball player, and I was certainly not a pitcher. So I knew nothing about pitching, but I started to learn. And so Nathan and I, together, we learned how to pitch. One of the things I would do to help him is I would record him pitching from different angles. So whether it was during games or even during practice, I would record him with my phone. Now, the purpose of these recordings was not so my wife could post them on Instagram. No, no, no. The purpose of these recordings was to critique his mechanics. You see, for a pitcher, mechanics are everything. And so as we looked at these videos, we would look at his arm angle, and we would look to see whether or not he was opening up too early with his front shoulder. And to a certain extent, the videos helped. They helped because I was able to show him what not to do, right? So, so don't do this and don't do that. But one day, I realized that Nathan was getting a lot better. And he was getting better because he was watching someone else pitch. He was watching someone who had nearly perfect mechanics. And so as he watched him, as he studied his mechanics, he truly learned how to pitch. You see, by watching him, he was learning about what he should do. And so instead of don't do this and don't do that, he began to see what he should be doing. Do this and do that. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul seeks to do the same for us. You see, Paul knows that it's not enough to be able to see the errors of others. It's not enough to know what not to do, but a Christian must also know what they should do. But make no mistake, Paul is not concerned about whether or not you can throw a baseball. What he's concerned about is far more important. You see, Paul's concern is about whether or not Christians know how to live their lives for Jesus Christ. And friends, there is nothing in this world more important than that. Go to Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8. That's our text today, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as we come to nearly our home stretch in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 8. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, here we come to a turning point in Colossians. As Paul moves from theology to how we live in light of our theology. Or you can say from doctrine to practice. So after giving us in the first two chapters an exposition of the gospel, he now gives us an explanation about how to live in light of the gospel. Now, this is typical of Paul's letters. If you know anything about the apostle Paul, you know that he always begins with exposition. And then about halfway through or about two-thirds of the way through, he'll shift. He'll shift to some of the practical implications of his exposition. In fact, he's already started in chapter 2. But the difference is that in chapter 2, he did it from a negative perspective. Right? So don't do this and don't do that. But here in chapter 3, he does it from a positive perspective. He says, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And so from chapter 3, verse 1, to the end of the book, what we have is just one long exhortation about how to live a Christ-centered life. And so what he does here in these first few verses, he gives us a few basic principles for living this Christ-centered life. And in fact, that's the title of my sermon, A Christ-Centered Life, Part 1, Basic Principles. A Christ-Centered Life, Part 1, Basic Principles. And here's my outline. First, look up. Second, put to death, and then third, take off. So look up, put to death, and take off. Three principles for living a Christ-centered life. Point number one is to look up. The first principle for living a Christ-centered life is to look up to the things of heaven. And this is where Paul begins. He begins by telling the Colossians to seek the things that are above. Take a look. At verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, notice that Paul begins with the words, if then. And when he says, if then, you know, he doesn't mean, you know, maybe you are, maybe you're not. What he really means is, since then. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And we know this because Paul is speaking to Christians. And a Christian is someone who has been raised from death to life through faith in Christ. And so what he's saying here is, since you have been raised, uh, since you have been raised with Jesus, who is in heaven, seek the things that are above. Look up to the things of heaven. Now, before we go on, uh, I want to point out two basic principles from verse 1. The first principle is that Christianity is not just doctrine. It's not just doctrine because what we know about Jesus requires us to live a certain way. Right? It requires us to live in a way that pleases God. So Christianity is both doctrine and practice. It's both what we know and how we live our lives. That's the first principle. 
Now, the second principle is that true Christian obedience flows from our identity. True Christian obedience flows from our identity. In other words, what we do is rooted in who we are. What we do is rooted in who we are. You see, Christian obedience, the the entirety of Christian obedience can be summarized by one single phrase. And that one single phrase is, be who you are. Be who you are in Christ. And this is Paul's point, right? Since you have been raised with Christ, since you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, be who you are. Live in a way that's consistent with who you are in Christ. And friends, this begins with seeking the things that are above. Well, okay, so what does it mean then to seek the things that are above? Well, to seek the things above means to set your hearts on the things of heaven. But you see, Paul's not talking about like the furniture in heaven or like the, the streets of gold or the gates of pearls that are in heaven, right? He's talking about the values of heaven. He's talking about the perspective of heaven. You see, Paul wants us to have a heavenly focus as we live our lives. In fact, what he really means is to set our hearts on the things of Christ, to set our hearts on Jesus, the one who reigns in heaven. So set your hearts on Christ. Set your hearts on the rule of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the character of Christ, the values of Christ. This is why he tells us here that, that heaven is where Christ is, right? It's where he's seated right now at the right hand of God. So you see, Christ is the goal of our seeking. All that we have in heaven is found in him. In fact, as one Puritan said, Christ is is the end of all seeking. Because if you have Christ, you have everything you need. So friends, let me ask you, what do you seek? You know, as human beings, we spend a lot of time seeking things. For example, we seek a good job, right? We seek a good job, we seek good health and good friends. We also seek after things like identity and purpose and fulfillment, We also seek after some of the things that we shouldn't seek. For example, wealth, prosperity, and comfort. But friends, what should we be seeking? Well, I think the best answer from the Bible comes from Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we have the closest parallel to our passage in the New Testament. And in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. That's the answer. That's what you seek. Jesus tells you that your hearts should be set on him and on the things of his kingdom. And then all these other things will be added unto you. So seek the things above by seeking Jesus Christ. Now, one way to seek the things above is to set your minds on the things above. Look at verse 2. He says, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. So you see, what you set your mind on influences what you seek. Here's the thing. For a Christian, right thinking leads to right living. In order to live rightly, we must think rightly. So this is why we have to be deliberate with what we set our mind on. Let me ask you, what do you set your mind on? What do you think about when you have nothing to do? You see, what Paul's saying here is, if it doesn't exist in heaven, don't set your mind on it. 
If it doesn't exist in heaven, don't spend all of your time thinking about it. Now, Paul is not asking us here to, you know, to sort of like live with our heads in the clouds, right? Or, or to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Uh, that's not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, I personally don't believe that statement is true, that you can actually be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. I agree with C.S. Lewis, who once said that those who have done the most for this present world are those who have thought the most of the next. But regardless, Paul is not saying this. He's not addressing this at all. He's not saying that you should just forget about the practical concerns of life. Because I think you have to care about these things. For example, you have to care about your job. right? In order to do your job faithfully as a Christian, you have to care about your job. I think you also have to care about your finances. Right? In order to be a good steward of the things that God has given you, you have to care about your finances. But you see, there's a difference between caring about it and being consumed by it. Let me ask you this. What do you think about when you don't need to think about your job and you don't need to think about your finances? Are you still thinking about it? Do you daydream about the perfect job, driving the perfect car, and having the perfect amount of money in your bank account? Or about going on the perfect vacation or, or living in the perfect house? You see, the concerns of daily life matter. They really do matter, but they shouldn't consume us. Friends, you need to know that even right things can wrongly consume us. Things that are not sinful in and of themselves can become sinful if we desire them more than God. If we desire them more than the things of heaven. So what Paul's saying here is don't set your mind on these things, right? Don't be consumed with these things. Instead, fix your thoughts and affections on things that are eternal. Be consumed with the things of Christ. You know, Paul also tells us to do this in Philippians 4 verse 8. He says it a little bit differently, but he's pretty much saying the same thing. He says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your minds on these things. Friends, right thinking is essential to right living. In order to live rightly, you must think rightly. So set your minds on things above. And then in verses 3 and 4, if you look at verses 3 and 4, in the last two verses of this section, Paul gives us three motivations for why we should be looking towards heaven. As if you needed more, he gives you three more motivations. And the three motivations are past, present, and future. So let's look at these motivations. The first motivation is that you have died with Christ. That's verse three. Paul says, for you have died. So you see, there's a sense in which when Christ died, we died. Our sinful selves were crucified with him on the cross. And so when Jesus died, we also died. And since we died to the world, then we shouldn't be seeking the things of this world for comfort. That's Paul's point. And that's motivation number one. You have died with Christ. You have died to the world. You shouldn't be seeking the things of this world for comfort. Now, the second motivation is that your life is hidden with Christ. Right? You are hidden with Christ in God. Now, to be hidden means to be secure. 
In Psalm 27, David says that God will hide me in his shelter. Or elsewhere, he says that the Lord is my hiding place or the Lord is my source of security. So what Paul's saying is that your life is secure. Because of your union with Christ, you get God. And because you have God, you are secure. Friends, you cannot be more secure than this, than being with Christ in God. United to Christ and united to the triune God. Now, it doesn't mean you won't suffer. You surely will suffer in life. You can count on it. But your soul will always be secure. And since your soul is secure, don't seek earthly things for security. That's Paul's point. And that's motivation number two. Your life is hidden with Christ. You are secure. Don't seek anything else for security. And then the third motivation, the last motivation, is in the future. So we have past, present, and future. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So friends, ponder for a moment all that we have in Christ. Right? When he died, we died. And when he rose, we rose. But when he appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Friends, Christ is our hope of glory. And so the point is this. Since you are united to the one who will bring you to glory in heaven, who cares about the stuff we have on earth? Right? Who cares about the trivial things in our lives? Who cares, for example, about the stock market or when your next promotion is? Friends, let me ask you. Are you struggling with the cares of this life? Are you troubled with the things in this world? Well, then what Paul would have you do is to turn your eyes upon Jesus Christ and to look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Friends, this world is not your home. Your destination is heaven with Christ in glory. So set your hearts on that. Set your hearts on things above. Now, this brings us then to point number two. The second principle for living a Christ-centered life is to put to death the sins that belong to your sinful nature. Put to death the sins that belong to your sinful nature. This comes from verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, notice the word, therefore. Right? He says, put to death, therefore. So, what is a therefore, therefore? That's something you should always ask when you see that word. Well, I think the reason he says therefore is because Paul is referring to the previous four verses. In other words, what he's saying is, since you have died with Christ, and since you have been raised with Christ, and since your life is hidden with Christ in heaven, well then put to death the things that are devoid of heavenly virtues. Get rid of anything that opposes the reign of Christ in heaven. Because, because these things are all earthly things. And like the things on earth that will one day perish, you must destroy them now. Put them to death. Now, this is similar to what Paul says in Romans 8.13 when he says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
And this is also similar to what John Owen famously said when he talked about putting sin to death. In his book, Mortification of Sin, Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Put it to death. And so Paul gives us a list of sins that we must put to death. Now, this is also typical of Paul's letters, where he gives you a list of vices, a list of sinful behaviors that you must get rid of. And also, another thing to note is that these vices are not meant to be exhaustive. They're never meant to be exhaustive, but they're meant to be an example of what Christians commonly struggle with. Now, in Colossians, whenever Paul gives a vice list, it always contains five vices with an explanation of the fifth one, right? So it seems like six, but it's really five with an explanation of the fifth one. Okay, so let's look at the list. He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So that's five items with an explanation of the fifth one. Now, what's unique about this list is that it focuses solely on sexual sin. And what's also unique is that Paul is sort of like a surgeon here. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever referred to Paul as a surgeon, but I think of him as a surgeon because like a surgeon, he starts on the outside with a scalpel and then he moves to the inside. He, he, he starts with sexual immorality and then he moves to the heart of our immorality, the idolatrous lust of our hearts. Now, the term sexual immorality, which is translated from the Greek word porneia, is the broadest term on this list. And this term includes all sexual activity outside of a marriage. So any and all sexual activity outside of a marriage is sexual immorality. It is sin. The next two terms, impurity and passion, cover any immoral activity which involve our thoughts and our attitudes. So any immoral activity which involves our thoughts and our attitudes. And then the next term, evil desire, refers to the desires which give birth to these thoughts and attitudes. It refers to the desires which give birth to these thoughts and attitudes. This is what James talks about in James 1.14 when he says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And when these, when these desires, when conceived, gives birth to sin. So that's what Paul means by evil desires. They're the sinful desires which give birth to sinful thoughts and attitudes. And then covetousness. Covetousness is which we desire what God does not want us to have. Now, I want to remind you that in the 10th commandment, thou shall not covet, we're also commanded there to not covet thy neighbor's wife. So that's the link between coveting and sexual sin. Do not covet thy neighbor's wife. And then finally, all of these sins can be traced to the root of all of our other sins, which is idolatry. Idolatry is when we love something or someone more than God. Idolatry is when we treasure something other than God. And friends, idolatry is at the root of all of your sin, including your sexual sins. And so Paul says, take the items on this list, Okay, Take all the items on this list and put them to death. From the immorality to the desires that give birth to them, show no mercy, take no prisoners, put them to death. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, God teaches us the idea of putting sin to death through stories of holy warfare. 
I don't know if you know that. When God's enemies, who were under the just judgment of God, were defeated by God's people, just think about this, God's people were expected to execute them without judgment. In other words, it wasn't enough to defeat their enemies. The Israelites had to put them to death. And these stories of holy warfare, they serve as illustrations for what God commands us to do with our sin. One example is the story of Saul and the Amalekites. Do you remember that story? That's 1 Samuel 15. And in 1 Samuel 15, Saul defeats the Amalekites. But in defeating the Amalekites, he captures Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive when he was supposed to kill him. What happened as a result of this? Well, later on in 1 Samuel, we see that the surviving Amalekites, who were emboldened by Agag's survival, led an insurrection against Israel. Now, thankfully, Samuel does what Saul should have done. He hacked Agag to pieces. That's 1 Samuel 15, 33. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. He put him to death. So friends, let me ask you, how do you deal with your sin? Are you like Samuel? Do you show no mercy? Do you you take no prisoners? Do you hack your sins to pieces? Or are you more like Saul? Like you tolerate your sins, right? You like to keep them around for a little bit because as long as they don't really get you into much trouble in the short run, you keep them around for a little bit. Friends, here's the thing. If you don't put sin to death, like the Amalekites, they won't go away. They'll just come back stronger and stronger and the consequences will be grave. Think about Saul. Think about Saul and let his story motivate you to put your sin to death. Now, Take a look at verse 6. In verse 6, Paul gives us another motivation to put your sin to death, as if we needed more. He says, on account of these, account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. So you see, because of Christ, not only is holiness possible, it's necessary. It's necessary as evidence of your salvation. Now, this is not to say that you can ever put every single sin to death that you will ever be perfect. And of course, our works can never earn our righteousness. Right? Ed said last week that if you add one speck of work to your salvation, you will burn in hell. But on the other hand, if you never show forth the holiness which comes as a result of your salvation, you will also burn in hell. Friends, true Christian faith must be lived out. We must always be trying to put your sin to death. And so if this doesn't characterize your life at all, If this doesn't characterize your life at all, the wrath of God is coming. There is a holiness without which you will not see the Lord. You must put sin to death. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Well, this brings us to my last point, point number three. The third principle for living a Christ-centered life is to take off or put away the sinful practices that were a part of your old life. To take off or put away the sinful practices that were part of your old life. Look at verses 7 and 8. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So Paul tells us here that we must put away the sinful practices that were part of our old life. 
Now, the term put away was usually used in the context of taking off your dirty clothes and then putting on new clothes. So I knew a guy in college who would love to play basketball, and he would play basketball every Saturday. And so this guy, when he played basketball, he sweat so much that even his, his basketball shorts were drenched in sweat. And so what he would do is on Saturdays, he would go to the gym and he would play basketball. And then when he came back, he would take a shower. But after he took a shower, he would then put the same clothes back on that he wore while playing basketball. And so we had to have an intervention with this guy to get him to change his clothes. And I remember one of my other friends yelling at him saying, you know, why would you do that? Right? Why would you take a shower and then put your dirty clothes back on? And I remember him yelling at him saying, put away your clothes. Put away your dirty clothes. This is exactly what Paul is saying. But not about basketball shorts, but about sin. In other words, now that you have a new life in Christ, why practice the same sins that were part of your old life? Put them away. Put them all away. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says about the term put away. He says, when you become a Christian, there are old practices to be abandoned. And there is a new way of life to be adopted. The old must be put off and the new must be put on. A figure of speech that is associated with the wearing of new clothes at your baptism. Well, that's interesting, right? What F.F. Bruce is referring to, that it's well known that in the early church, they would throw away their old clothes when they got baptized. Right? So, so the clothes that they wore as they went to their baptism, after they got baptized, they would take it and they would throw it away. And they did that to symbolize that to wear something that resembled their old life would be inconsistent with their new life. They would throw away their old clothes. Maybe we should do this at our next baptism. So the next person that gets baptized, we're going to throw away your clothes. No, we're not. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul gives us a list of sins that we must throw away. We must put away. In verse 7, he reminds them that they used to walk in these sins. These sins used to be a part of their old life. And then in verse 8, he gives them a list of sins that they must now put away. They must throw them away in light of their new life. And so here we have a second list of vices. Again, Paul uses the same pattern. right? Five vices with an explanation of the fifth one. So we have anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk with an explanation that the obscene talk comes from your mouth. Now, notice this. Paul moves from sexual sins to sins having to do with our speech. And in this second list, instead of moving from the outside in like a surgeon, well, he moves from the inside out. And so he starts with the attitudes that give rise to sinful speech, and then he moves to the outward manifestations of these attitudes. To things like slander and obscene talk. Okay, so let's go over this list. First, we have anger and wrath. Now, these two terms, anger and wrath, are pretty much interchangeable. They both describe unrighteous anger, sinful anger, which James says will not produce the righteousness of God. And then we have the term malice. Now, the word malice just means the desire to do evil. And so if you add these three terms together, right, anger, wrath, and malice, what you have is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Mark 7, when he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have a guy who is always speaking in a way that's sinful and, and, and abusive, we have to remember it comes from a heart that struggles with anger, wrath, and malice. Angry speech always comes from an angry heart. And then, lastly, you have two terms. You have slander, which is when you lie about someone to ruin their reputation. And then you have obscene talk, which means cursing, filthy language, or any kind of abusive speech. Now, let me say something about cursing. So maybe because it's New York, you know, a lot of people ask the elders, is it a sin to curse? Is it really a sin to curse? The answer is yes. It is a sin to curse. It is a sin to curse because in Ephesians 4.29 it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouth. Do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouth. But here's something I like to add. Cursing is not just about whether or not you say a particular four-letter word, but it's about the way we treat those who are made in God's image. You see, cursing is bad. It is bad. But it's not just bad because it sounds bad, because it sounds vulgar, but it's bad because it talks badly about another image bearer. Listen to what James says about the tongue from James 3 verse 9. He says, with it, that's our tongue, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. So you see, the, the sinfulness of cursing has nothing to do with how vulgar it sounds, because as culture changes, right, the vulgarity will change as well. You sort, you sort of start to get used to it. But the, way, the reason sin, it's a sin to curse is because the person you're cursing at is made in the image of God. So Paul says this, all right? Take everything on this list. Take, take all the items on this list and put them away. Like, like dirty clothes after a shower, put them all away. So let me ask you, how is your speech? If I were to put a recording device in your pocket, what would I hear? What if you were to pocket dial me by accident and leave like a 30-minute message on my phone? what would I hear? Now, maybe I won't hear obscene talk, but will there be slander? Do you belittle others? Do you gossip about others? Do you talk badly about others? Are you unkind with your speech to your wife, to your husband, or to your children? Friends, you must put these sins away. Brothers and sisters, you are destined for heaven. Do not speak as if you belong to this world. Let me close with three points of application. There are three ways I think we can apply this passage to our lives. Here's the first one. Application number one, take deliberate steps to make sure that you fix your hearts on heaven. Take deliberate steps to make sure that you fix your hearts on heaven. Let me give you three things you can do this very week. Number one, make sure that you fellowship with others who also fix your hearts on heaven. Let me ask you, who influences you the most in life? Who's the most influential person in your life? And does that person make you long for heaven? Well, if the answer is no, then what I think you should do, if you haven't done so already, is to seek out godly disciples who can help you set your hearts on heaven. You see, what we want to do here at North Shore is to promote a culture of discipleship where people organically meet up with others to talk, to pray, to study the Bible, 
and to remind each other about heaven. These are our expectations as elders. We want our members to be regularly involved in each other's lives. Friends, membership rightly practiced should lead to discipleship. That's what membership should look like. So are you, in some way, shape, or form, involved in discipleship? Whether you're discipling someone else or someone is discipling you. Let me also say something about social media and the way social media affects whether or not we fix our hearts on heaven. You see, the problem with social media is that we underestimate its influence on our lives. I mean, there are people on social media called influencers, right? That should tell you something. Their job is to influence you. And friends, they are not pointing you towards heaven. The people on TikTok are not teaching you to store up treasures in heaven. But there are people who will point you towards heaven. There are people who will point you towards Jesus Christ. So pull back on social media and let the godly people in your life influence you to seek the things above. Seek out godly disciples, approach a person who is older in the faith, and ask them to disciple. You can do that this very week. Number two. So we're still on application number one, but we're on number two. Another way to set your hearts on heaven is to commit yourselves to corporate worship. Commit yourselves to corporate worship. Friends, do not underestimate the value of corporate worship as a means of heavenly-mindedness. Don't underestimate it. You see, one way we can set our hearts on heaven is to simply show up at corporate gatherings. Okay, so as Wednesday worship comes to an end, so sad, uh, we go back to having church night. Now, let me say something about church night. I know Sunday nights are hard because it's right before Monday, and you're sort of gearing yourself up for a really busy week. But how many of you, after coming to church night, have felt like you had a foretaste of heaven? You see, I think God gives us corporate worship, like what we have on church at church night, so that we could have a taste of heaven. So one way to set your minds on heaven is to simply show up. Show up and get a glimpse of what heaven is like. Commit yourselves to corporate gatherings. Church night begins on September 24th. It's for members and new member candidates only. It's at 5 p.m. September 24th. Now, the third way to set your hearts on heaven is to read your Bible. Set your hearts on heaven by reading your Bible. Here's the thing. Summer, it's almost over. I hate to break it to you. And as the summer winds down, as the kids go back to school, this would be an excellent time to rededicate yourselves to reading your Bibles. Friends, how can you set your mind on the things above unless your minds are filled with the things above? Right? How can you have a heavenly focus if you don't know what heaven is like? So rededicate yourselves to reading the Bible. Summer is almost over. Time to get back to consistently reading your Bibles. Okay, now application number two. Search your hearts for any idolatrous lusts and put them to death. Search your hearts for any idolatrous lusts and put them to death. Begin by doing this. Begin by examining your hearts in light of God's word. And then under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, search your hearts, repent of any idolatrous lusts, and by God's grace, put them to death. Hack them to pieces. Now, notice that what I said was, examine your hearts for any idolatrous lusts. Right? I didn't say repent of sexual immorality and cursing. I could have just said that. Right? That would have been the immediate application from the text. 
But what I said was, search our hearts for any idolatrous lusts. Because I think what's important here is that we search our hearts for the desires that lead to immorality and cursing. Because if you look at Paul's list, right? You look at those two lists in verses 5 and 8. Most of the sins are sins of the heart. Just look at them. Impurity, passion, evil desire, these are sins of the heart. What about anger, wrath, and malice? These are also sins of the heart. Here's the thing. If we are to ever grow in holiness, if we are to ever grow in our sanctification, we have to fight sin at the heart level, at the level of our desires. You see, the question is, why? Why are you so prone to obscene talk and slander? Why do you commit sexual sins? Why are you watching pornography? What are the idolatrous lusts that lead you to these sins? You know, one of the most important things to remember is that as human beings, we are worshipers, right? And we're not just like occasional worshipers. We're 24-7 worshipers. And we worship, that's all we do. We worship. We're always worshiping someone or something. So our main problem, whether it's sexual sin or cursing, is a problem with our worship. Our problem is that we often worship someone or something other than God. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. An idol is anything we make equal to or more important than God. So what are some of the idolatrous lusts that you struggle with? What must you have? What what do you need to have so much so that you're willing to sin in order to get it? Friends, your elders want to come alongside you to help you identify these idolatrous lusts and to repent. Well, we can't help you if you're not willing to be honest. I also want to put in a plug here for our biblical counseling ministry. Uh, We have people here at this church who want to come alongside you and to help you repent of your idolatrous lusts. But you have to be honest. You have to come to us for help. Let us help you search your hearts for any idolatrous lusts and put them to death. Last application. Application number three. Take an inventory of your life. Take an inventory of your life. Make a list of the major things that are going on in your life. And then ask yourself, what is your life about? What is your life really about? Take a quick look at Colossians 3 verse 4. Because I don't want you to miss this. Look at Colossians 3 verse 4. Paul says, Christ, who is your life, appears you also will appear with him in glory. Now, notice that little phrase right there, Christ who is your life. Now, I don't think that Paul is just saying, you know, you know, a Christ happens to be your life. Just throwing that in there. What he's saying here is Christ is your life. He's not just a part of your life. He is your life. So he's not just, you know, sort of like first on your list of priorities. He's the entire list. He's the lens by which you view the rest of your life. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Paul's life was all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And which is why in the next phrase, he can also say to die is to gain. Because to die means more Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is more Christ. 
even in death, our lives are all about Jesus Christ. So take this list, take all the items you have on this inventory, and ask yourself this. How does this contribute to the glory of Christ? And how does that over there exalt the supremacy of Christ? And how does this thing right here serve Christ's kingdom here on earth? Brothers and sisters, reorder your priorities. Reorder your priorities and make Christ your entire life. That's what it means to live a Christ-centered life. To be able to say, Christ is my life. Let's pray. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Father, who are we that you might give us the life of your Son? And who are we that you might send him to live for us and to die for us and to be raised for us and that through union with him we might have life eternal? Oh God, help us now to see Christ and to pursue Christ, and to love Christ, and to obey Christ, and to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to see with eyes of faith what is true for us in heaven, and what is kept for us in heaven, that we may put to death and put away all of our sins for the glory of his name. Amen.